Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program with the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Melissa Kane, and I'm a journalist and a lawyer here in the Bay Area, and I am so excited to be moderating today's program. I am pleased to be joined by actor and author and illustrator, artist, John Lithgow. You've seen him in TV shows such as Third Rock from the Sun and The Crown and movies like The World According to Garp and Bombshell. But he's here today to discuss his newest collection of satirical poems and illustrations. It's called A Confederacy of Dumpties, Portraits of American Scoundrels in Verse. This is where Lithgow expertly tracks the dark and lyrical stories of 25 American scoundrels from Andrew Jackson to Newt Gingrich. We are so pleased to have you, Mr. John Lithgow. Thank you, Melissa. I feel welcome. I uh, <laughs> now I think the, the way you set up the oh, I'm sorry. I think the way you set up the book is really terrific, and I was hoping that maybe you would start to frame our discussion today with a read of the prologue called "Trumpy Dumpty Was Losing the Race," and we can go mm-hmm. from there. Yeah, this is this sort of spares me the trouble of uh, introducing our whole uh, conversation because basically the prologue does it. Listen carefully, and you'll you'll know exactly what we're going to talk about. Trumpy Dumpty was losing the race. A scowl beclouded his bright orange face. Watching his margin increasingly widen, he raged at his nemesis, Sleepy Joe Biden. The turbulent years of the POTUS's reign had shortened his temper and addled his brain. Like a latter-day Nixon, Capone, or Iago, he prowled the precincts of plush Mar-a-Lago. I won, he invaded. It's a load of fake news that Nick was a loser, and I never lose. In a fever, he frantically seized on a plot to rally his base for a bold coup d'etat. From thence, Dumpty throttled our national life over two gruesome months of contention and strife. Political discourse was drowned in the muck by the quackery spewed by our manic lame duck. His treachery finally came to fruition. He stirred up his mob to an act of sedition. They laid siege in response to his rash exhortation to Biden's electoral certification. We watched them despoiling the Capitol Dome like the Visigoths storming the portals of Rome. Horrors, we cried. He's let anarchy loose. We've never beheld such despotic abuse. But never, my friends, is an awfully long time. Our histories replete with corruption and crime. Scoundrels abound and their damage is ample. Dumpty is merely the latest example. And so, for the moment, leave Dumpty aside and try to take all his offenses in stride. The voters have finally shown him the door. We've arrived at a time to revive and restore. Since we don't have to deal with this swine anymore, let's remember the Dumpties who've all gone before. That's the prologue. No, what I like about this is it's a very hopeful book, right? I mean, it's supposed to help us feel like a part of a larger history and not like we're living in a a sort of specifically apocalyptic moment. 
Well, I've never heard it described as a self-help book, but that's kind of what it is. I'm, I'm very flattered to hear you say that. Uh, basically, I, I, it's the third book in a trilogy. There was Dumpty, the age of Trump in verse. Uh, Trumpy Dumpty wanted a crown versus for a despotic age. And now this one, those first two sort of took on all the crazy cast of characters from uh, Dumpty's long administration. And this one disposes of him immediately. It's like he's lost the election. He's now old news, thank goodness. We're all tired of the subject. Let's go back and look at his precursors. It's kind of a history book. The early poems go way back to the early 19th century and then just work their way up to the present day. And it's an amazing list. There are certainly people on there that I recognize. People will recognize people like Andrew Jackson and um, General Custer. But there are some that I had not been aware of. Um, and so I learned a lot in this book as well. How did you choose who you would feature and how do you how do you define an American scoundrel? Well, uh, that's uh, the, the pr choice process was wonderful. I'm married to a history professor, a UCLA history professor, Mary Yeager, and she very much steered me in the direction of this new approach. Actually, I dreaded doing another book. I just thought this is beating a dead horse. But when she suggested a historical approach, it sort of fired my imagination and and she pointed me to a lot of her colleagues and friends in the world of history academia. And I also sent out sort of blind invitations to the likes of John Meacham and Rachel Maddow, people who use history in historical storytelling in their journalism. And they responded immediately, like it was a parlor, parlor game. I said, give me, if you take more than three minutes, you're doing more than I ask. Just give me five names of people you consider scoundrels from history and hopefully people that you think I've never heard of. And the most amazing names came up, which sure enough, I'd never heard of them. And I did a deep dive and I created this, this database and then just kind of curated that, that it whittled it down to what ended up 21 poems, which feature maybe 40 different names uh, and I just had the kind of delicious experience of reading these tales of moments and actions and people in history that I that I just was not aware of. And all of them with extraordinary parallels to what's happened in the last four years, this political. Are you allowed to tell us um, any of the suggestions that you got from Doris Kearns Goodwin or Rachel Baddow or any of yeah. the... The fancy people that you 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 solicited? Well, yes. Uh, John Meacham told me all about Theodore Bilbo. It's this crazy Dixiecrat uh, who passed away in 1947 after a long career in the Senate, just doing everything he could, for example, to kibosh anti-lynching laws and perpetuate Jim Crow. Uh, Mary came up with the name of Sarah Howe, a Boston con woman, who created these amazing pyramid schemes long, long before Carlo Ponzi. I describe her as having smashed the, the glass ceiling of white-collar clock. Yeah, girl uh, boss. <laughs> there's, there's a completely amazing uh, figure from the 1920s 
a man named John Romulus Brinkley, who uh, his poem is called The Goat Gland Doctor, because he he was a quack doctor who devised this, this procedure to address men's impotence by injecting goat gonads into their testicles. Total garbage medicine. And he spun this into a billion-dollar empire and became the first huge uh, radio, talk radio star. He, w- he was as famous as Rush Limbaugh in his day in the 1920s. And now knows about him. Yes, you even now, have. Now, do folks at home, can, I hope they can see that. There's this, this is the illustration. So the poems are illustrated, of course. And this is yes. the drawing, one of the drawings of him with his goat. Uh, yeah. It's so, I couldn't help laugh, laughing yeah. so hard. Well, it, it's, it's certainly, story. it is definitely a, co- a comical tale, but oh my God, you, you just, you just can't believe that what he got away with. Uh, anyway, that's, he's, he's one of the most vivid examples. And, and I'll read you just a little scrap of that. Uh, yeah. Oh, great. I was just about to ask you to. Great. Perfect. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, great. Yeah. If you've got the whole in his office one spring morn, John's exalted brand was born. A farmer shedding all civility bemoaned the loss of his virility. Dr. Brinkley, thinking fast, riffled through his bogus past. I know what to do, he cried, and lugged a neighbor's goat inside. Soon, the farmer burst with joy. His wife produced a baby boy. Reporters rushed to amply quote him, Doc sold goat gland in Muscogum. You see, he <laughs> lots of opportunities to be funny and to make surprising rhymes. But that's well, and what's so doctor. interesting is, is they, they, you also you tell stories, right? It's not just a profile poem. I mean, you're actually going through and really explaining their rise and, and sometimes fall uh, in the poems. I mean, how much um, research did you have to do to make sure you could, you know, really be pretty comprehensive in, in, these, uh, in these poems? Yeah, that, well, that's a very good question that goes to the whole heart of the project. I did a lot of research and then boiled these poems down into 15 or 20 stanzas, which had to tell the entire story give the entire consequence, uh, give an arc, because almost all of these people, their lives end badly, their lives and fortunes. Uh, I, Rachel Maddow, I consulted her remarkable podcast on Spiro Agnew uh, called The Bagman. That's eight hours long. And having done the, the podcast, she turned it into a like 500-page piece of history, well, I boiled it down to 15 stanzas, which tells you absolutely everything. Uh, I sent the poem to her when I, when I had begun a little communication, gathering names. And she, I, I was a little bit nervous and self-conscious sending it to her, but she was ecstatic. She thought this was fantastic. It's, it's like history as told in a haiku. Well, it is actually one of the best, uh, they're all wonderful, but it is one of the best poems in there. Could you read maybe some or all of that Spiro Agnew uh, poem? Actually, that's a good idea because it it takes a little while. This is probably three minutes of reading, but it gives you a very good sense of my approach and the nature of these poems. 
I call it Spiro Zero, mainly to remind people how I'm going to pronounce his name in the poem. Any list of miscreants is certain to include Spiro Agnew, the embodiment of venal turpitude. His history of larceny began in Baltimore with penny-ante bribery behind an office door. Spiro was unburdened by a civic sense of guilt. He took a piece of everything the county council built. After pocketing a cut of every rebar, brick, and stanchion, he took up residence inside the stately governor's mansion. As chief exec of Maryland, he upped his dirty game. Then as Richard Nixon's running mate, we got to know his name. The role of Dick's attack dog suited Spiro to a T, and we ended up electing a felonious VP. For years, the dollars mounted up, surpassing all his hopes, delivered to the White House, stuffed in bulging envelopes. Like a fat and happy porker, Spiro Agnew was in clover, unaware his sunny skies would soon be clouding over. Meanwhile, back in Baltimore, three legal eager beavers caught a whiff of underhanded givers and receivers. The three uncovered graft that would have shocked the likes of Nero and a trail of evidence that led them straight to, to Spiro. Full of dread, the threesome sped to Washington, D.C., and face to face they made their case to Nixon's prim AG. This was Elliot Richardson, bespectacled patrician, a gentleman embarked upon an even darker mission. The House was holding hearings, weighing criminal intent, obstructing justice, charged against the sitting president. The Baltimore attorneys thus were piling Elliot's plate with an extra load of trouble in the midst of Watergate. The AG's brain exploded at the news of Spiro's graft, criminal behavior taxing all his legal craft. A disaster lay before him like a chasm wide and deep, the concurrent prosecution of a POTUS and a VEEP. The removal of the president could happen any time making way for Spiro, a leviathan of crime. Elliot saw the task at hand. The clock was ticking down. Get him out of office quick and kick him out of town. With a leak, the press descended. Like a weed, the scandal grew. For a moment, even Watergate was banished to page two. Spiro's fiery countercharge defied his certain fate, excoriating fake news and denouncing the deep state. But faced with facts too incontestable to fight, he struck a deal with Elliot to vanish in the night. No prison term, no recompense, his felonies ignored, his punishment, a soul disgraced, replaced by Gerald Ford. So Elliot had pulled it off with subtlety and flair, but he wasn't quite so lucky with the Watergate affair. The Saturday night massacre was 10 short days away. Richardson was ousted when he just rejoined the fray. When Spiro Agnew walked away, the public shed no tears. 
He languished in obscurity for 23 more years. He wrote a pair of worthless books, but no one ever read them. If there were words of praise for Spiro, no one ever said them. His rise and fall can teach us all a tarnished golden rule. The higher the heights from which you drop, the more you look the fool. He lived a life of vice, and yet a broken system led him the kindest homage we can pay is simply to forget him. And that's Spiro Zero. Now that, Rachel, 500 pages, very good pages, but mine is just 15 stanzas. Well, it can just it can be a lot of work to boil it down to just a little bit, just to show the t- the tip of the iceberg. You really have to have uh, quite a bit going on below the surface. But one of the things I, I really love about the poems is it's clear, and I hope this isn't stating the obvious for someone who writes poetry, but you really love language and words. And it's clear that you're not just sort of trying to figure out like how I can just say this as quickly as possible uh, and how to rhyme it, but you're really being very careful with every word you choose. And some of this is amazing. You you rhymed diorama with Alabama and plebeian with Tennessean. I mean, tell me about your your process and how you um, how you sort of craft the stanzas in the way you do. Well, for one thing, it's it's agonizing excruciating uh, and very time consuming. I actually hated doing <laughs> the only boy <laughs> was reaching the last word of the last rhyme of the last stanza of a poem. When I got there, it was great. Until then, it was just dogged work. I, I, you're right. I was very, very anal about meter and rhyme. The rhymes had to be perfect. No false rhymes. There's one or two, but I think I get away with them. But the meter had to be just right. And I was constantly wrangling with my editor, saying, attention must be paid to the meter. My, my great models are <laughs> Edward Lear, Lewis Carroll, A.A. A. Milne. And, you know, going way back to Alexander Pope, uh, they... they you know, it, it's like the measures in a musical staff. It's got to be right or there's something wrong. It's like telling a joke in which you stammer or sneeze or somebody sneezes. Anything that breaks it up in the slightest takes away the impact. Uh, and impact is the word. I mean, I this the book ends with a, an epic, my mini Iliad, a long, long and very serious poem called Dumpty's Dream, which is a recounting of of every single event from the dawn on January 6th all the way to the dawn on January 7th, when Congress left their chambers having finally certified the election. Tells the whole story of January 6th. It's a dark poem about a dark subject. It's a very troubling poem. And yet... The meter and the rhymes are perfect, so there's a kind of delight to it at the same time. Uh, And I've always said, if you can make it rhyme, you can make it memorable. In in a sense, this, a lot of this storytelling I do in these poems, it's telling stories that have been forgotten. And I always say, I write these to make people laugh, to make people mad, and to make people remember. And if you can make them rhyme, you can make them remember. 
Well, you don't just make them rhyme though, right? You also illustrate uh, yeah. in this book. I mean, you actually, I mean, the pictures are amazing. You know, it reminded me of um, Shel Silverstein books, Silverstein, Silverstein books. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, the word, the poems had a, you know, an illustration that accompanied it. And, mm -hmm. um, and so they're really lovely. But one I wanted to, to talk to you about is this one, because you, you really uh, talk about Nash and what yeah. his impact was on the perception of Boss Tweed. So tell me about his inspiration. Yes, I, I'm so delighted you picked that out, Melissa. And I can assure your viewers and listeners, we did not plan this at all. Uh, that, <laughs> you know, it's a book of scoundrels, but that... But my poem about the scoundrel boss Tweed is actually about a good guy, too, a bad guy and a good guy. And the good guy is Thomas Nast, who was a great satirical political cartoonist. And in a sense, I, I'm tempted to read this poem, too. We didn't plan this. And again, I don't want to take up time, but I think I will read it because it's great. Please do. This, uh, underlying this poem is the whole idea of this. It sort of explains satire, why it's delightful, why it's challenging, and why it's necessary. My, as I say in the introduction to the book, I, I note the fact that there is a poem in here about Boss Tweed and Thomas Nast, a villain and the person who brought the villain down. And, you know, we would, nobody would know, Boss Tweed, Tweed is, is the poster boy of corruption. Everybody knows what he looks like. Everybody knows at least something about his history. They practically know what he smells like. But not a because of, of necessarily Boss Tweed, because of Thomas Nast. Boss Tweed. Right, we got some of his in history cartoons here. That's right. That's Thomas Nast. He is another, he, yeah. you can add him to that list of models I just gave you. And so this poem is kind of like a meditation on that very fact. It's called, it begins with a, a pun. The, the, the title contains a pun, Nasty Business, The Tale of Boss Tweed. Who can we name that embodies corruption? A venal volcano that's primed for eruption. Why, William M. Tweed. Watch him lurch to the stage, putting the guilt in New York's gilded age. Though Tweed was a penniless chairmaker's son, he commanded an empire before he was done. But a word to the wise for us all to recall, the lowly cartoonist would trigger his fall. After trying and failing at every craft, young Tweed caught the scent of extortion and graft. A stint as an axe-wielding fire brigade thug infected the lad with the power broker bug. His political clout shot up like a geyser, Alderman, congressman, town supervisor, payoffs and kickbacks were standard routine as he rose to the top of the New York machine. This was Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed's private fief, ironically named for an Indian chief. Infested with felons, the law couldn't catch him once Tammany made him their mighty grand sachem. His strong-arm brutality, cunning, and trickery gave him free reign with official hand-pickery. Peter B. Sweeney, A. Oakey Hall, Slippery Dick Connolly, and Tweed ran it all. As the city exploded with commerce and growth, Tweed defied every statute and broke every oath. 
In every transaction, his ring was a player, and taxes were swindled from every taxpayer. But urban corruption was only the start of the brute double-dealing he raised to an art. With booming new industries high on his docket, the vast Erie Railroad fit snug in his pocket. Real estate, too, caught the boss's keen eye, a gargantuan slice of the Manhattan pie. With land confiscated, developed, and sold, the whole of the Upper East Side turned to gold. Tweed's crooked career made him richer than Croesus, a jigsaw of fraud where he owned all the pieces. A thousand exchanges with Tweed on the take, the new Brooklyn Bridge, a half-ownership stake. But a criminal empire is destined to tumble. A quirky reversal would cause it to crumble. In a sleigh-riding mishap, Tweed's auditor's head was crushed by a horse, and he ended up dead. His hasty replacement poured over the books, revealing a cluster of shysters and crooks. Armed with the proof of Tweed's manifold crimes, he ran unafraid to the staid New York Times. We now introduce the aforesaid cartoonist who brought down the boss like a punctured balloonist. The depictions of Tweed by the great Thomas Nast were scathing, scathing, satiric, and destined to last. Nast pictured a slob of false staffian bulk, a baleful, beady-eyed, glowering hulk. Tweed frantically raged at his impotent goons, my people can't read, but they see them cartoons. Nast and the Times spelled the end of Boss Tweed, an epic collapse from the wages of greed. Jailed on all charges, he fought them in vain. He even escaped once and bolted to Spain. But back in Manhattan, bereft of his fame, Tweed languished in lockup and wallowed in shame. Of his Gilded Age pelf, there remained not a trace. At the Ludlow Street Prison, he died in disgrace. So what do we learn from Tweed's gloomy demise? What prudent perception to open our eyes? A lesson to teach both defendant and jurist, from youngest beginner right up to maturist, you needn't be kindest or cleanest or purest. Just don't ever rankle a caricaturist. <laughs> <laughs> you, is there a nast today? Is there somebody today that you think is um, similarly great at this craft? Aside from yourself, obviously. Well, there we have a, a fantastic roster of great satirists in... in um, in popular entertainment, and that is our night night show chat show hosts, Colbert, Trevor Noah, Jimmy Kimmel, John Oliver, uh, Samantha B, Bill Maher. It goes on and on and on. And the four Trump years have have sharpened their wits. Uh, that's a very particular kind of satire. As far as there are great, and there are great. Uh, uh, Cartoonists, for sure. Barry Blitt of the New Yorker 
He does the New Yorker's very best political satire. I love it on the covers of the New Yorker. There's this great guy. I think his name is uh, t- uh, t- Tom Till- Tills, or I-, I wish I had his name. I'm demeaning him by forgetting his name, but he's the political cartoonist for the Washington Post, and his stuff is just great. I mean, Trump lends himself to that. Uh, it's very... <laughs> all of the satire is kind of wilting now for want of a really, really delicious subject. Joe Biden is... Yeah, I was, nice. yeah well, I was thinking, um, so, you know, Sarah Palin, the Tina Fey Sarah Palin no. satire, and maybe no. even going back even further to Chevy Chase and Gerald Ford... Just the yeah. way they were able to kind of shape the public's perception, maybe of people we didn't already know. So we, you know, this yeah. is sort of our first introduction was through this. And yes, so when I mean, we think of these people, this is kind of what we think of. Yeah, I, I, I should certainly have mentioned Saturday Night Live, which has always been there. I mean, uh, Alec, Alec Baldwin's Trump was fabulous. Uh, um, Kate McKinnon has just been hilarious in all the Daryl Hammond. It, it goes, there's a long, long history. And they are, there. there's a certain, it's just a very different form. I mean, my poems are, particularly in this third book, some of them are deadly serious and downright grave. They're still witty. And they still take you by surprise with little uh, jokes that go off like firecrackers, the rhymes at the ends of the stanzas. But Saturday Night Live never quite goes there, nor do any of those clowns. I revere them. They are my guys these days. (laughs) But I wrote a, uh, a, a poem right in the middle of this book, this recent current book, it's right in the middle of the 19th century. It's called uh, Centennial Day, 1876. And it's it's a poem about the massacres uh, of Black people during Reconstruction. This was a, a history that I was only mildly, only slightly aware of until I did research for these poems. And I uncovered stuff that was so terrifying and revealed so much about this country uh, to my terror. It's about post-Civil War, and it was evidence that the Civil War did not stop when the Civil War ended, that it went on straight through Reconstruction. And the contested uh, presidential race of 1876, just like the contested presidential race of 2020, it just showed what fissures there are in this country and how hard it is to bring us together. Now, Saturday Night Live doesn't go there. Um, I'm not congratulating myself from for this. It's just in, in the nature of, of this particular, just this third book. Uh, We're all smart-ass satire. It's very much in that vein. But you go back in history and you you discover something that's quite chilling, and that is the, if you go looking for the villains of history, you have to really look hard because it's part of the human condition to bury the really bad news of the past. In a way, it's just too shameful. You have to be a really big Hitler for history to exa- a really big villain like Hitler to have history dwell on you and really and truly examine you. Otherwise, you're likely to be 
just forgotten. And uh, well, and you you do talk about this a little bit in the um, in the poem about General Custer, and you know the the his yes. death comes in the poem, and then you actually continue on and discuss his yeah. wife and her sort of media to, to extent, you know, there was media, her sort of media savvy at the time and, and, and enshrining him as the hero. Yeah. It, 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 it was a startling little, uh, in my research, this is a wonderful professor of Western history. Who's a colleague of my wife's. He's, he's Stephen Aaron. He has retired from academia, and he is now the director of the Gene Autry Museum of Western Art and Culture in, in L.A. And when I asked him to give me examples of Western hero, here, uh, scoundrels from the Old West, he said, you've got to do a poem about George Armstrong Custer, because no one resembles Donald Trump more than him. I was, that was jaw-dropping to me, but I did a deep dive do we have time for me to read the Custer poem? I... Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not particularly it's not as long as the other one. So yeah, sure. The thing about Custer is he is he's a glistening, gleaming hero in American history, but nobody bothers to show the other side of him, which is that his sterling reputation was self-created. Uh, in fact, his wife was his his confederate. I don't know. It's a pretty long poem. I don't want to take up too much of our question and answer time. I'll read well, it. Well, maybe you could pick up around the um, when he lost the battle and then his wife kind of takes over. Okay, that's we'll do it. The first half of it is all about his history during the Civil War, where at the age of 23, he became the youngest brigadier general. Uh, he was called the boy general. And then the he becomes a national hero by the end of the war. But then the war is over. The South had surrendered. The Union had won. But Custer still clung to his saber and gun. With the thrill of the chase in his veins and his pores, he pointed his horse to the Indian Wars. The nation was opening broad new expanses, spreading through Oklahoma and Kansas. But the Pawnee, Arapaho, Sioux, and Cheyenne were resisting America's grand master plan. Custer in buckskins cried, leave it to me. I'm all for expanding the land of the free. My army and I will take matters in hand. We'll break all their treaties and take all their land. An unlikely companion rode out by his side, Elizabeth Bacon, his Civil War bride. Libby played a dual role in their marital pact, a wife and a press agent, hawking his act. Custer, the reckless and rash martinet, needed all the good press he could possibly get. His intemperance, peppered with blunt self-promotion, brought censure, court-martial, reproach, and demotion. Libby stepped in as his image as adjuster, demanding the public let Custer be Custer. She used every arrow she had in her quiver to soften the carnage at Washita River. But the real Custer legend was finally born on the Montana Plains by the Little Bighorn. When Crazy Horse and his warriors struck, they rang down the curtain on Custer's luck. Custer's finale was self-orchestrated, his cavalry trapped and annihilated. He died an impetuous, foolhardy jerk. But Libby, 
recovered and went right to work. She gilded his story and burnished his name, a fastidious keeper of Custer's flame. Over 56 years of devout adulation, she saved him from factual deconsecration. Most of us swallowed her rapt hagiography, suckers for drama, and martial pornography. We shucked our misgivings and struck up the band for the spurious fable of Custer's last stand. But today, Custer's epic has grown cautionary, a timely reminder to warn the unwary. When a scoundrel from history exits the stage, fictions will turn into facts as they age. Now, I suspect you know, it will be controversial, but I think Custer is, he bears examination. Well, and I just think it's, um, especially since they're, it's it's sort of Sarah Howe and um, Typhoid Mary is another person you talk about in the book. And then Custer's wife. These are some of the the women that, that you get to, that you sort of bring into the stories or, or write stories about. And so I thought it was, uh, it was really nice when you transitioned into her role and, mm-hmm. and kind of um, burnishing his reputation. Yeah. I, I had never heard of her, but she was a famous sort of a, like a 19th century talk show circuit. Uh, figure. She wrote books and gave lectures all about what a glorious hero her husband was, and it worked. <laughs> I hope my husband doesn't get any bright ideas. There will be none of that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm glad yeah, you mentioned the ladies. I, for I, you. Uh, I, I, did, I, I did manage to find those four women. I didn't want it to be only male scoundrels. Although, let's face facts, there are far more male villains than female. Well, there are far more um, villains that got caught. I'll say that. <laughs> I like to think, I like to think we're just a little more stealth sometimes. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> but we've got some audience questions coming in. I wanted to get to those. We've got one that says, um, "You're making me think about Stephen Fry. I wonder if you worked with him or met him before. I'd love to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. Are you familiar with him? And and tell us yes. about that. He's a friend, and I've worked with him twice. I was I acted with Stephen in Civil Action. Uh, the the legal drama, and also in the television movie of The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. And he's absolutely remarkable wit. Uh, People in England know him as this just extraordinary intelligence. He's on these these fabulous quiz shows in which you're just dazzled by his, first of all, his quick mind and his humor, his quick wit, but also the expansiveness of it, not to mention these amazing books of Greek mythology that he's published. I don't know whether you're aware of those. And they were published by my same publisher, Chronicle Prism. It's best that I give them a little shout out. I know <laughs> That's very smart. <laughs> we also have a question about your, I guess you're a Harvard graduate. And the question is, did you ever imagine you'd use your Harvard education for a creative work like this? Well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I had a wonderful time at Harvard. I, I, I loved my Harvard education, but I have to say I spent two thirds of my time doing extracurricular theater and I, I directed, I directed, I staged operas and Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Uh, I sang and danced. Uh, 
I designed my own shows. I directed The Beggar's Opera by John Gay in a house dining room. Uh, It was probably the most creative four years of my life. And meantime, I was getting this in-depth education. And I, even though I graduated magna cum laude, I, I never, I never put that into the conversation because I'm embarrassed by my Phi Beta Cap status. I don't believe I deserve it, but it made me fascinated by history and literature for sure. And I have never stopped being curious. This is, I've done a lot of, historical research when I've played historical roles. Winston Churchill, for example, I spent months reading about him more than I needed to. I just found it so fascinating. But this is by far the most research I've ever done on anything I've ever done. Are you going to do another book? You said these are painful to write. Are you? Is this, are we going to get a fourth book? Maybe a happy book. Maybe a book about awesome things. Well, I think for the most part, these are happy books. Uh, but uh, I, a trilogy, I have uh, reached closure, I think, on the entire subject of Dumpty. I don't know. I, it, it's They are a huge success. Uh, I, I'm astonished. Uh, uh, they are, this one is on its way to being a bestseller like the other two. And, you, you I mean... Fate has a way of drawing you in certain directions. If you're successful at something, you tend to do more. Look, when it came time to do a second book and when it came time to do a third book, I wanted nothing to do with it. I knew I was going to have to work so hard. The pandemic came along. I was in lockdown and I wrote two of those three books. So I don't, I certainly hope another pandemic surge doesn't overwhelm us. Um, but I'm also my it's it's not my day job. My day job is acting. We'll see. I have I would have to get an idea. I've written a lot of kids books and I might do another one of those. And you've mentioned Shel Silverstein, who's one of my heroes among kids illustrators. It's yeah, very, very similar. My children's book editor, a wonderful man, the late David Gale, he always wanted me to do a book of poems for children and illustrate it just with line drawings as Shel Silverstein did. And that is exactly the model I've used for these very grown-up satire books. So who knows? I probably should do one of those. Are you also, one of the audience members asked, uh, are, did you record the audio book? And if so, uh, what was your favorite part? Yes, I did. I, I have recorded all three of the audiobooks. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'll tell. I, I can read you my favorite poem. Uh, Please a, do. That'd be great. There are two poems. There's a, one is called "Happy New Year." One of them is called uh, uh, "Happy." Re, uh, uh, Happy Reunion, a grand old party part part two about the wa- all the Watergate alums gathering for a reunion in January of 2022, where when their 50th reunion is coming along. But this one is Happy New Year, a grand old party part two, which is about a fictional New Year's Eve following the last presidential election. Dumpty Funsters, ere you leave, share one final New Year's Eve. 2020's almost done. 
Likewise, all your DC fun. Four long years flew by too fast. Power and glory never last. Celebrate your single term, all the drong and all the sturm. Answer Dumpty's siren call, Mar-a-Lago's New Year's Ball. Wait a second. This is queer. Ten to midnight, no one's here. Where are all the invitees? Fetch me those RSVPs. Scaramucci missed his flight. Seculo mistook the night. Pruitt's Cadillac broke down. Dershowitz is out of town. Someone slashed Jeff Sessions' tire. Conway set her stove on fire. Larry Kudlow has a cold. Wilbur Ross is too damned old. Bolton stumbled on a stair. Rudy couldn't fix his hair. Michael Cohen's still in jail. No one's heard from Brad Parscale. Pence, Mnuchin, and Purdue thought they might have caught the flu. Spicer, Price, DeVos, and Barr said Palm Beach was just too far. Bannon, Chow, and Cipollone, more excuses, all baloney. But look who made it, just in time. Each unburdened of his crime, free to live a life of ease, Dumpty's recent pardon ease. Arriving first is Roger Stone, but he hasn't come alone. On his heels, Paul Manafort, slurps a Jeroboam of port. Gliding in is Michael Milken, his demeanor sly and silken. Papadopoulos is late, hefting in a heaping plate, next to portly Elliot Broidy, braying loud and adenoidy. Charles Kushner enters, flushed with pride, Dinesh D'Souza by his side, joining tipsy Michael Flynn, bourbon dribbling down his chin. Halting chatter, tinged with gloom, echoes in the empty room. Counting down, they raise a toast, honoring their absent host. Flutes of cheap champagne are downed as the chimes of midnight sound. Bring on 2021, another year has just begun. Meanwhile, in his private suite, Dumpty wallows in defeat. Around him, equally bereft, the only trustees he has left, Miller, Hicks, and McEntee, plus the Dumpty family. None can manage to cajole him, raise his spirits, or console him. Huddled round his slippered feet, their desolation is complete. A distant roar of drunken cheers falls on deaf, unheeding ears. At last, that old familiar line, the final words of Auld Lang Syne. That was one of my favorites to read out loud. But yeah, that's uh, the illustration. That's all the pardonese in Mar-a-Lago based so, on yeah, so, the images. So yeah, all the, uh, all the poems each have at least one, if not many, um, pictures. And, and this, this actually portrays each of the people uh, referred yeah. to who showed up to the party uh, in yes. in the book. So for folks at home, there's more, there's even more. Um, there are a couple of additional questions. One person asked, if some, as someone like yourself, who's been watching and writing about the Trump administration for four years, were you still shocked at the events of January 6th? Um, oh. Or were you sort of, you know, I don't know, numb or, or, or otherwise uh, not too surprised when it happened? 
Well, I, I, oh, it was astonishing. I never thought that would happen. Bill Maher warned us, you know, one of our great satirists, he said, she's not going to go away, and these people are armed. Uh, it, we, I think it was, it was a really bracing moment. It was horrifying, but we needed to be shown just how bad things have gotten. Uh, this is what happens when someone seeks to divide whether, rather than to unify. You really cannot think of a single thing that that president ever said to bring us together. Everything he said was to make us disagree and fight with each other. And that's a disaster in a, in a democracy. Uh, but that was, that was the very, very logical conclusion. It's just that none of us saw it coming. Nothing quite that dire. Did... Um... As you've sort of dug in and uncovered people who, at least in their moment, were quite famous, uh, and do you see that the people around President Trump, uh, like the people who are in the poem you just read, uh, also being lost to history? Do you think in you know in a hundred years someone will have to dig deep to learn about Anthony Scaramucci or you know one of these one of these folks who was part of the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, one startling thing. When I was promoting the second book, uh, I remember one interviewer talking to me about browsing through the first book again and being brought up short by all the people he had totally forgotten about. You know, people like Scott Pruitt and Tom Price and uh, Scaramucci, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, they, they just sort of drift from your sensibility when they dominated the headlines. I mean, Trump, what is the thing that he did best in his own estimation? Fire people. He just fired people. That's how he governed, by keeping everybody so terrified that he would fire them. Something that he hasn't, you know, that's a culture that he has still maintains. People are still afraid to cross him. Well, you know, I satirized a whole bunch of people who were already gone by the time the books came out. You know, I wrote a a a a, a, very, a very sharp satiric poem about Brad Parscale in the second book. And look what's happened to him. He's been just not just marginalized, but really tainted by his association with Donald Trump. And that's happened with with the majority of those people. It's so ironic that they spent their entire time in their positions trying to cover up for Trump's bad behavior when ultimately he ruined all their lives. I mean, yeah, I mean it's hard to I've keep up when you're writing there, and then... <laughs> there is, and, and I've always felt that there is a certain strain of empathy running through these poems. I feel so badly. I feel so sorry for these people not just because they get ridiculed by me, but because their lives are, are ruined. I mean, they can't go into a restaurant without people spewing contempt at them. Uh, they've been canceled, in, in, a, in a sense, by their association with Donald Trump. Um, I have a question here that says, does every villain or scoundrel meet uh, an ignominious end or just the ones we know about? Are other people who are who are able to cover up their misdeeds, sort of cover up and, uh, you know, they don't get counted as scoundrels because there's no public 
fall for those folks who've done something bad, but we don't really think about. Well, it's very interesting, the difference between the Watergate gang and the Trump gang of felons. The Trump, the Watergate gang, like 19 out of 20 went to prison. And that's all recorded in the little historical biography that uh, accompanies each one of these poems. There's a factual list of exactly how every one of these, John Mitchell, Chuck Colson, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, they all serve time. Almost no one has served time in the Trump uh, rogues gallery. And if they did, they were ultimately exonerated, commuted, their senses commuted, forgiven, and they can strut around as if they never committed a crime. Something bad has happened, the fact that that can that can be the case. Um, I think it's because the legal system has just been so manhandled that uh, Trump Trump's extraordinary ability to survive is all because he just he just uses the legal system like the snakes entangling the Leakawan. Uh, you, know, you can get away with anything at the moment, and that's got to stop. I think one of the most sort of timely poems that actually is in that is in here, and I don't know if this was intentionally done, is the one about Typhoid Mary. Uh-huh. And she's a character that I've watched a documentary about her, but before I'll be honest, before I watched that documentary, I wasn't clear that she existed or if she was just, you know, like we say, a peeping Tom or Jack of all yeah. trades, and it was, you know, it was just sort of a, a phrase, but she was real and really teed up some of the ethical conundrums we in, we sort of found ourselves in um, with this pandemic. So can you talk a little bit about her, why you included her, why her story is, um, is, is kind of an important one now? Yeah, it's she was a tough Irish cook, a real fighter. Uh, her the terrible fact of typhoid Mary was that she was an incubator of typhus. She carried the virus and she didn't know it and it didn't affect her, but she conveyed it to other people. And as once they started chasing her around to, to she was a cook in, in rich families in New York. And she would run from house to house as she was apprehended and just continue infecting people. I hesitated to to include her because she's more a sad case than a than a despicable case, but I wanted I just absolutely had to find some more women to put in my in my book. Um, I don't think we have time to to read it, but I mean the the uncanny thing is how it it connects with the pandemic people who are simply denying that there's anything wrong with them when they're going around infecting other people. So she belongs in the book, but, uh, but that's another one that is very empathetic. She spent the last 26 years of her life in quarantine, not in prison, but in quarantine. Yeah, but she, I mean, they kept saying you can go, but you have to promise not to cook anymore because this is how you're infecting people. And then she would go. And I think at one point she tried to do something else. She tried to work at like a, book factory or something like that and then she said she scrapped that and went back and when they found her the last time she was at an institution she was cooking for a lot of people and it was like lady just what yes right she was just don't do this well she was just bullheaded and not very smart apparently so (laughs) so they had to put her in, in quarantine i'll last i'll read you the last 
stanza of her story, a villainous or heroine, opprobrium or praise, the tale of Typhoid Mary and the curse she had to carry is actually cautionary in our own pandemic days. I mean, that's, that's why she's there. The other quack, the other medical quack was uh, Dr. John R. Brinkley. I, you know, I have the, the sense of humor of like a seventh grader, so I could not stop laughing when I see the word, when I see the word scrotum, I'm just going to crack up. So it's a, <laughs> it's a good, funny <laughs> word. <laughs> it is a funny story, but he, he did actually get caught up with at the end. And oh yeah, he, he died a wretched death. I mean, most of these people, they, they lost their fortune and died in prison. I mean, it's the, the end of Boss Tweed, the end of John Brinkley. Uh, they come to a bad end. Uh, it's Greek. Hubris, hubris catches up with you. Well, and I think in a lot of the stories, like Brinkley um, and even Typhoid Mary, they, they just keep going, right? You you get caught or something happens, and then you do it again. And even Sarah Howe, right? She gets caught, she goes to jail, she comes out and does it again and again. And what we see over and over again are these people, even Spiro Agnew, who just can't stop doing this thing once they have experienced yeah. <laughs> whatever their thing, you know, their, their treachery is, they really can't yeah. stop. And they actually do get multiple chances, which is why, you know, we don't, we don't get too sad for them at the end. Um, well, because, they, you know, well, <laughs> and the classic story is Bernie Madoff. I mean, a man who he started with little lies and they became bigger and bigger to the point where he just, there was no way out. He was buried in his lies. Uh, I guess their rationale is, well, what else am I going to do for a living? <laughs> Can't get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, John Lithgow, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really appreciate you sharing your duration of your poems and your explanation of how you went through the process. We we know you, you know, you're an actor, you're involved in Hollywood. You know, they if something makes money, they're going to just keep flogging it so uh i i i wonder if we're going to see a number four since this one's doing so well but uh well we certainly hope so <laughs> well i tell you if i do write one i'll come right back to the commonwealth club so please do and if you need a list of scandalous women just email me i will <laughs> okay. i'll give you a list <laughs> i'm eager to meet them <laughs> really, excellent thank you, melissa well, you've made this so easy thanks a lot Thank you. Uh, many thanks to John Lithgow for joining us today, discussing his new piece of work, A Confederacy of Dumpties, Portraits of American Scoundrels in Verse. We want to thank our audience for watching and for participating live and submitting all those great questions. If you want to see more, uh, more programs or support the Commonwealth Club in our virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you all. Please stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.